Father, we thank you for the beauty of this time of year. We thank you for the crisp, cool weather and uh, the change in the seasons and the different ways that the world is revealed to us now uh, in a way somewhat more barren, but nevertheless stark in its beauty and angularity. And we thank you for your care for us in all of the seasons and all the seasons of life. And we pray tonight as we enjoy conversation together about some of the uh, interesting and challenging issues in your word that you would grant us grace to be thoughtful, to be charitable, to be uh, fully engaged in heart and mind and that we would profit one another and that we would glorify our Savior in it. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, as I said um, at, uh, a few minutes ago, I hope most of you have gotten the email where I gave you the list of questions. It may make it a little easier for you to follow along. I have eight of them, and I have ordered them according to categories, uh, scripture interpretation, theology, whimsical, and ecclesiology. I categorized them because I thought this is a little bit like a smorgasbord and it's nicer to have the similar elements on the table next to each other as you're loading your plate. That was my inspiration in any case. Um, And I'm just going to follow them down in that order. Now, I should have said, uh, but didn't, but I'll say now, that um, uh, I didn't make it clear whether you needed to be identified with your question. And um, so if you, I'm not going to identify anyone who asked questions, but if you're willing to be revealed as the source of the quandary, then please feel free to speak up. Uh, I just don't want anybody to be forced suddenly into the limelight. So that'll be all procedure. I'll just raise the question in the abstract, but if it's yours, you're welcome to, you know, wave your hand or uh, give a thumbs up or uh, at least uh, be ready to follow up. If my answer's incomplete, then uh, you want to pursue it. Um, I'm not sure about whether we'll publish the recording. I am recording it, but I don't know whether it would be of general interest. We can maybe figure that out after the evening's over. Um, But in any case, uh, I I can make it available to you individually if if, uh, we don't publish it more generally. So let's make a beginning. Now, uh, you'll see if you've looked at these questions that we could spend a course on each one of them. Um, There's so much of interest to consider. Uh, So I'm going to be giving the outlines of an answer, the basic structure of an answer. You feel free to follow up, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, I'll have an opportunity to say a little about everything that's before us. And if it seems good, and if there's interest to follow up further, this could certainly, out of this, grow another study. So, our first one, um, Scripture Interpretation. Uh, uh, The basis for Dante's levels of hell in the inferno. I've always thought that the West's cultural imagination of hell owed much to Dante, but that Dante's imagination didn't owe much to scripture. Would you clarify? So, 
Let me see what I can say that about that. Uh, first of all, the tension here is that there are clearly passages of, passages of Scripture that um, take human sinfulness in general as rebellion against God and all participate in that sin and all are equally guilty of it and all will suffer as rebels against God. Um, there are other passages that might suggest uh, to people that all sins are equivalent, but that would be a mistake, particular sins among the rebels. So uh, Jesus says, um, if you have hatred in your heart for a person, that's as good as murdering. But Jesus does not mean to convey by that that hating is the same thing as murdering or that murders uh, equal to or uh, that uh, it's not much, much worse. It's far worse of a sin. And, uh, and you could see how morally incoherent would, it would be if that were not the case. If simply hating were the same thing as murdering, well, you may as well just murder. You've nothing to lose in the matter. Uh, but the fact is you've increased uh, the aggravation of your heart hatred by then having that break out into the world and be a sin against others and society and so on. So we, we want to make that distinction clear. There is uh, one sinful state called rebellion against God and all rebels will suffer the fate of rebels and perish under the judgment of God. But... The scripture does teach us that that judgment will be just in each individual case, each one getting his due. And so I don't think uh, the idea of levels in hell is found in scripture. That's Dante's imagination. But I do think the scripture very uh, clearly teaches uh, that um, the judgment of God against particular sins will indeed be experienced differently by uh, different sinners. Uh, in Revelation 20, uh, I think you can see these two perspectives brought together at verses 11 through 15. Uh, we hear in general of uh, these rebels against God, but then we hear another book was opened, uh, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. That's verse 12. Now, all of the people who go through this uh, facing up to their deeds uh, are thrown into the lake of fire. And that's what I'm calling the um, uh, punishment to all rebels. But within that imagery then, there will be more severe punishments for those who deserve more severe punishments. Jesus taught this quite plainly, and it is a little bit of a, it's a very tough word, it's a hard word, and if Jesus wasn't the one principally teaching it, I think we might have a hard time with it. But in Luke chapter 10, at verse 10, uh, the, uh, Jesus says, um, talking to his disciples in the ministry he's being sent out. They're being sent out on whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you. Go into the streets and say, 
Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom, Sodom than for that town that has rejected you. And he goes on in verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in you, excuse me, but it, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. So you, you see, whatever punishment the former residents of Sodom and Tyre and Sidon are experiencing, the Galilean towns that refuse to hear Christ will experience more. Clearly, the level of punishment is tied to the amount of light that the person rejects. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah had far less light, light they were sinning against uh, as opposed to what was uh, in, 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 before these towns. And then finally, consider Jesus' teaching in Luke 12 uh, at verse 47. He's told a parable about servants waiting for a master who's uh, coming but not there yet. And at verse 47, he, he then talks about when the master has come, what's, how are things going to fall out. And he says, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and, and did what deserved a beating will receive a lighter beating. For to whom much is given, much of him will be required, and, for whom, uh, and, and from whom uh, they will be entrusted much, it will be demanded more. So um, the, the imagery of levels and all of that is imaginary, but the, the foundation of it in the theology of the justice of God and his dealings with sinners, um, I think, uh, fully vindicates the idea that there are um, degrees of punishment uh, among those who are rebels against God. I think I'll stop at that point, but I see Bonnie's trying to get my attention, or Bill, I'm not sure which. But... It's, it's, it's me. Those are home yet. will be home soon. Um, okay, so this is just twisting my brain, which is not bad, but... For so long, I've heard that no sin is different. And now what you're saying is that the punishments are different for different sins. But any one sin still is what will send us to hell aside from the um, saving grace of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the latter part is true. I wouldn't put it that way. Okay. I, I'd say that... All of our particular sins grow out of our sinful rebellion against God. They're merely indicative of that rebellion. And all rebels will perish. But some rebels will have acted in a way so far with such, greater, in such a greater heinous way that justice would demand that they be addressed in a far more vigorous way. So you have, uh, imagine you have a, uh, a, uh, 
a, a prisoner of war camp. And the camp is illegal according to international law. And the people are being mistreated. You have one guard, however, who feels pity on the children and secretly feeds the children. While you have another guard that brutally lines people up and uses them as targets for target practice. Now, the one who was a guard in the camp doing all the wrong things everybody else was, but he mitigated his wrongdoing by those acts of mercy, where the other aggravated his wrongdoing by doing it in a more flamboyant and an extreme way. Our catechisms speak of how some sins are mitigated by our behaviors and other sins are aggravated by our behaviors. And to the degree that they're aggravated or mitigated, God takes that perfectly into account. Does that make sense, Bonnie? Um, I guess what I'm, I'm, your question, what we're talking about is hell, not for those who are not going to hell. That's right, absolutely. Okay, okay, that, that helps me. Absolutely. Great. I'm glad you're probing, though, Bonnie. Don't worry, you know. <laughs> Dr. Gerstner used to talk about how he would give us a charley horse between the ears occasionally, and then he'd have to try and massage it out. So the, uh, these are tough subjects, but um, I think I've given you what the Scripture teaches on the matter, and, and you can see how it must be that way, because God is absolutely just. Um, any other questions or responses or thoughts on this first one? All right, well, I'll press on then. Um, the second is, concerning God, uh, hardening uh, some sinners in their sin. Um, and uh, the scripture's quite plainly, uh, quite plain spoken when it says that. Uh, but then the question is, isn't God the author of sin in some sense? Isn't he, uh, some sense himself, guilty in that. And uh, I think the first thing that we want to say about it is this, that the scripture is unblushing in saying that God hardens some sinners. Exodus 4.21, Exodus 7.3, Exodus 14.4, Exodus 14.17. All of these associated, especially with God's judgment against uh, Egypt and Pharaoh, uh, God is said to either harden the hearts of the Egyptians or harden the hearts of, uh, the heart of Pharaoh. And the New Testament doesn't blush about that. Uh, Paul makes a point of it in Romans 9 at verses 17 and 18, um, citing Exodus 9:16, a passage right in the midst of all of these sections that speak of God hardening. And Paul in Romans says, uh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's Exodus 9.16. So then he has mercy on whomsoever he will and he hardens whomsoever he wills. Now, 
that's the plain scripture teaching that raises the quandary in our minds. Um, the, uh, uh, we all feel that if we are compelled to do something that's wrong, that somehow we're not, we're not guilty of it. If, if someone uh, uh, duct tapes a pistol to my hand and uh, forces me to hold it up and pointing it at another person um, and forces my finger to pull the trigger, no one would think I was morally culpable of that. Um, the, if, I, if I don't intend the crime, and in fact, if the crime has been committed against my will in every way, in, in terms of my interior life, and it's merely been forced upon me in some way or another, then everyone uh, invariably feels that it would be unjust for me to be punished for that. So there's the difficulty. Now, we're going to make it more difficult uh, because if we look to 1 Samuel 6.6, 6, here um, we have a discussion from the Philistines uh, bringing up this whole issue. And um, the question is asked, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? The, th the very thing that the text says God hardened. Now here it's said that in fact the people themselves hardened their hearts. And that this isn't a unique phenomenon. It's just a, a particularly nice instance of it. Um, the, um, the opening chapters of Job have uh, Satan as the agent and the moral cause of the catastrophe. But later in the text, it talked about how God brought it. So now we wrestle with this problem of two kinds of agency. Um, and uh, this can be very mysterious, and we have to think very carefully. And I want to emphasize the difficulty of it, and note especially Calvin's wise counsel. He put it this way. Here we're talking about the doctrine of predestination. He said, the predestination of God is indeed, in reality, a labyrinth. That is a maze, puzzling. From which the mind of man can by no means extricate itself. But so unreasonable is the curiosity of man that the more perilous the examination of this subject is, the more boldly he proceeds, so that when predestination is discussed, he cannot restrain himself within due limits. He immediately, through his rashness, plunges himself, as it were, into the depths of the sea. What remedy, then, is there for the godly? Must they avoid every thought of predestination? By no means. For as the Holy Spirit has taught us nothing, but what it behooves us to know, the knowledge of this would no doubt be useful, provided it's confined to the word of God. Let this be then our sacred rule, to seek to know nothing concerning it, 
except what the scripture teaches us. And when the Lord closes his holy mouth, let us also stop the way that we may not go further. Now, that's an extraordinarily wise counsel for us. And there are folk who have gone profoundly wrong in speculations and uh, uh, demanding uh, um, matters be brought into perfect conformity that are not on the face of it, uh, but aren't necessarily contradictory either. But here, uh, I do think it's important for us to reflect even on our own experience, and we can see a distinction. Um, the um, If it were possible, I don't really think it is possible myself, but if it were possible for me to force someone to do something of their own volition, clearly it would be mitigated. But suppose the person is already hardened and my influence has been a restraining influence but I can make a decision to withdraw that restraining influence for good purposes, such that you could call that person being hardened. But the hardness isn't coming from my withdrawal of restraint. It's coming from the free and full exercise of the hardness. And that's why it can be properly referred to as hardening the heart. In other words, the hardness of the heart is more visible because of the circumstances. So uh, a, a, a policeman knows that he stands at the corner and that while he's on the corner, it inhibits robbers. But he's heard that there's a terrible uh, robbery planned. And in order to um, uh, not be an early impediment to catching all the crooks who have planned, he leaves the corner. Now, they are more free in their determination to rob. Their hearts, as it were, are hardened in their purpose for want of the restraint. But that policeman isn't guilty in the least of what they have been now free to do, but rather his behavior is judged on his purposes. And in this case, it was for the purpose of doing good. Now, I think that distinction, we parents face this regularly that you may not punish a child at a particular time when he deserves it in order to teach some lesson. And it may be the occasion of that child sinning in a way they wouldn't have otherwise if you'd have immediately tried to stop it. Do you see that? So I, I think that's what is at work here and why the scripture ends up talking quite freely about it being the Israelites who hardened their heart in the desert and they're warned in Hebrews, don't harden your hearts like they did in those days. And yet, it's also plainly said that the Lord hardened their hearts. But one was a withdrawing of restraint. The other was a liberation of my natural ill will. Uh, does that make sense in terms of trying to sort all of this out? Does anybody want to follow up with a question or concern?
Well, all right. We go from the frying pan into the fire. Question three. Um, what does the scripture teach on the question of whether few or many will be saved out of the whole human race? Um, uh, the, this question was much longer. I'm not going to, I'm editing it down for the sake of our time. It has appeared that the number of believers far outweigh the number of, excuse me, unbelievers far outweigh the number of believers. There are periods throughout church history, the Great, Great Awakening, Reformation, when an empirical assessment would yield a different answer, where there seem to be more believers. However, the very fact that those periods are marked out as unique, given names like Great Awakening, etc., suggests that the broad run of history is more similar uh, to uh, my experience. It seems odd to me to, to think that God would accomplish and apply a redemption so grand, and yet it end up saving only a few out of the mass of humanity. What do the scriptures teach on this topic? It seems to me that there are scriptures that come down on both sides of the issue. Uh, Luke 17, 13, 7, 13, Luke 13, 23, etc., so, too, there have been giants of the faith who have come down on either side of the issue. Uh, so, what are we to make of this? Well, the first thing I want to say is for an answer that will be far more satisfactory than I can give, um, uh, I want to make reference to you, and I'm going to put into the chat the um, uh, reference um both in the hard copy and uh, a site where you can find it. This is an essay by one of the greatest, if not the greatest, theologian in the 20th century, in my estimation. Um, that is Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, who taught at Princeton. An essay called, Are They Few That Be Saved? Um, and uh, the... Um, there are other sites where you can find it, but this site's the only one I could find where the footnotes are preserved and the footnotes are fully worth having. It's a relatively short article uh, and Warfield's pretty plain speaking, so I, I think you could uh, profit from it. But uh, there are four texts that seem to speak of uh, there being few saved uh, and more perishing. One of them is simply a repetition. So there are only three texts. And Warfield goes pretty carefully over those texts. And he shows that um, when Jesus says things like that, uh, for example, uh, broad is the way, many will enter, narrow is the way, uh, and, and it's much harder. He's not talking abstractly quantifying the number of people ultimately to be saved. That's not the point. His point is not doctrinal, it's ethical. His point is to say, this is the way to life. It's tougher, but you need to follow that way, however broad and easy another way is. In each one of those, Warfield shows that it's an ethical point being made, not a doctrinal point about eschatology. He then goes on further to show the great statements that, that talk about um, uh, every knee, knee bowing, for example, not uh, under constraint, but voluntarily. The great texts in Revelation where uh, 
a multitude that no man can number from every tribe and nation is gathered together. Um, the, uh, and uh, the other point that he makes is that um, the interpretation that sees Christ specifically teaching that there are few that are saved insists on taking Christ's words as characteristic of every moment in redemptive history as opposed to the particular moment that he finds himself in. Now remember, the time he finds himself in, there's virtually nobody left who's following the narrow way. All of Israel has gone with the broad way. But that hasn't been the case with Israel always. There have been times when virtually all of Israel seemed like uh, they were following the way of God. So there's this. Uh, so we 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 can't insist on t- making those statements talk in general about redemptive history. We have to apply them to the particular circumstances and time and place. When Peter says a similar thing as his epistle, remember Peter was part of when there was a tiny band, a little flock. Um, but by the time Peter finished his ministry. He's spoken of as one of those who turned the world upside down. So again, we have to have a great care in looking at those texts. And um, and I will say that, uh, I mean, there have been uh, those who were dissidents on this, uh, but I would say that the greatest theologians of the modern period all hold, in fact, that the greatest number of humankind will be under the reign and rule of Christ and saved by his saving work. That includes Warfield himself, it includes R.L. Dabney, um, it includes uh, W.G.T. Shedd, um, Charles Hodge. Now, all of them had slightly differing views on how to argue for that. Uh, So, for example, uh, Hodge and Warfield uh, believed that all children dying in infancy were subjects of God's saving grace, and therefore they would be in heaven. Um, there were other Reformed theologians who didn't, they thought there was much in the scripture that could lead you to hope for that, but it would be very hard to prove that from scripture. There there were others who said, no, it's, but all children dying in infancy who are covenant children. Um, the, uh, so that changes the dynamic a little bit. Um, they didn't even know how much <laughs> it changed the dynamic. If I, I mean, we know now that there are more fertilized ovum that are destroyed in spontaneous abortions than there are people born in the world. So if every infant dying in infancy uh, is going to heaven, then there's no question about what the answer is. There's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands more people. But we have no way of coping with the speculation on that uh, area. But it just it's interesting what follows from that older argument. But the, the point is this, that um, there's no reason that we couldn't imagine 
God prospering the work of the gospel at a time where communications around the globe and the populations are, you know, 10 or 15 times greater than the whole world population has ever been, uh, that there could be a tremendous uh, revival. And I think that Warfield's text that he draws forward in favor of that from Revelation and other parts of the gospel. Um, I take the Jesus wheat and the tares. The picture is way into the edge of the But the, the point is the whole corn crop comes in and the tares, the few of them, are, are, are torn out. That image seems to vindicate the other point of view, that there are few, only these tares, that are going to perish, and the whole crop is going to be uh, saved. So um, I think uh, that there is a very good reason for supposing. Uh, I'll say one other thing. That, again, it partly depends on how, these, how you use these images. But the Bible does seem to say that humankind, from the beginning, is one organic whole. From Adam and Eve grow the whole race. Now, so that they're one tree. And some of the imagery of Jesus and the prophets talks about some being lopped off because of their fruitlessness and so on. But that image still argues that the tree and its fullness is what's going to continue and finally flourish so that all the birds of the heaven in another of Jesus' parables can come live in it. Um, So uh, that's the way I I would respond to that. Um, And I commend to you Warfield's essay, but I'd be glad to hear... um, uh, criticisms or comments or reflections from anybody on the subject? Dave, thank you. This is Paul. Um, thank you very much. That's very helpful. Um, and I'm part of the way through Warfield, so I grabbed his um, discussion on some of the points you mentioned. I think the um, part of what raises this question in my mind is the the self-consciousness of being a believer now and for the past over 30 years where you don't get a sense that you're part of a majority. You, in fact, get the sense that you're a pilgrim with other pilgrims in a a, um, foreign land. And um, so maybe there's a historical thinking or a question I need to think about there because it feels like if the answer is as you say and again I you made some very good points and Warfield does as well but it seems like there should should be periods of time where there is that feeling that I'm as a believer part of a majority of of the society so right Right, and and we can think of periods uh, like that. I mean, the um, certainly New England in the early days of the colony, uh, even um, uh, Britain during the Commonwealth and the uh, uh, Calvin's Geneva. I mean, these are pockets, but 
you can see at least the the possibility that um, there that Christians have at some t- time or another um, felt as if that they were living in the midst of a community that uh, was being brought powerfully under the lordship of Christ. Um, it's of course it wouldn't make it heaven on earth. Um, <laughs> the PCA is a community powerfully brought under the lordship of Christ, but it can be pr- pretty tough to be a Christian in the PCA these days. <laughs> um, the Christians can be pretty rough with each other. Did uh, did Warfield's post-millennial views have something to do with this as well? His view, or I haven't, like you say, I'm only a bit through the, the article. He doesn't uh, bring that forward, but I don't doubt that that... Um, his postmillennialism uh, has something to do with it. I'm going to take that up in a few minutes here if we get to it. But just remember that um, uh, postmillennialism and amillennialism both believe that there's going to be um, a victorious reign of Christ over the whole world. The post-millennialist believes it'll be after a, a, a thousand-year reign, symbolically, of a millennium that ushers in this age of faithfulness. The amillennialist doesn't have an opinion on that subject. Uh, except to say that the whole intertestamental period is the millennium in scripture's symbolism. And we're given the impression that throughout the whole inter, uh, uh, not intertestamental, interadvental period is the millennium. And during that interadvental period, um, there's going to be times of ebbing and flowing throughout the whole period. That's the basic difference between the two. But all believe that, in fact, there will be a worldwide um, uh, um, bowing before Christ when he returns and that he he isn't coming to rescue um, just a little enclave. He's coming with all who have gone before to gather up... Uh, a whole world of his people. So it could be said that the world was saved through him. Does that? Yeah, thanks very much. That's helpful. Other thoughts? All right. Um, question four. The um, uh, This question... Uh, reminds us that uh, we believe in inerrancy, uh, but it's one thing to believe in inerrancy. It's another thing to struggle with different people's interpretations of Scripture. So there's a space there between saying that God's word is certainly without error and true, and yet God's people may not always be getting the right message from that certain and unerring 
And so the question is, with respect to the story of creation in Genesis and the seven-day timeline, um, the, um, uh, and just a reflection, um, why is God such, in such a hurry in creation uh, that the whole deal has to come off uh, in a week in seven 24-hour or six 24-hour periods when in light of the rest of the, the world history after creation, everything slows down wildly. And what God likes is long protracted periods, seasons for growing and ripening fruits and fruit and foods and maturing of good wine and sequoias growing for over a hundred years, coral reefs over a thousand years. Um, why the earth and all it's in it having to be fixed and finished in six days? And so is there room for thinking about this uh, after the manner of a day is like a thousand years? Um, and I think it's a very good question. Um, I think the first thing that I want to do here is put in the chat um, a link to the PCA study committee report on this subject. It was a major uh, effort, um, and it was, um, the study committee was of some of the uh, most able scholars and pastors in the denomination. And that is available to you at the PCA Historical Center website. So I've put the link uh, in the chat there, it's a long report, but it's very well done. And the report identifies, I um, can't remember now off the top of my head, but I think it's five different views of interpretations of Genesis that they believe are compatible with Reformed theology. Um, so let me, in answering this, say, in the first instance... I think we need to distinguish between creation as a miracle and providence as the natural order that follows the miracle. The miracle isn't bound by natural order at all. It is an immediate expression of God's will to accomplish something for some purpose. The providential order, on the other hand, finds its root in the outcome of the miracle, but it operates on a, an, at an entirely different plane. Now, I think we have to grant that. Our confession of faith grants the distinction. What are God's uh, works? They're works of creation and providence. Those are two different orders, they, and they operate according to in, in entirely different procedures. But now let's reflect on the miracle order when it breaks into the providential order. So Jesus turns water into wine. And the wine's very good. The guy's shocked, serving the best wine. His taste buds, which are attuned to all the things that make for a good wine, which is grape varieties, a growing year, the soil it was planted in, all of the things 
that make good wine happened in an instant from water. But the wine that followed from it had all the characteristics of naturalness. And, and it, was, it entered the providential order, and although it was the first of its kind, <laughs> water going into wine in the providential order, after that, it would turn into vinegar if it were left out too long. Uh, it it, it, it uh, could be used medicinally and so on. Um, so I, I think we need to let those reflections inform the way we think about the difference between Genesis 1 and 2 and the whole providential order that, that follows on it. And I say this because uh, although... This is crucial both from the point of the interpreter of Genesis wanting to be faithful. It's also crucial from the point of view of science. Now, science grew up out of a Christian world worldview, largely. I think it's demonstrable historically. The idea of a stable order of cause and effect, a benevolent order that was designed by God for our good and so on, uh, an order that was designed to be open to intelligibility that could be understood, even its deepest principles, and so on. All, all of that is rooted, not in paganism, but in Christianity. But what Christianity also brings to the table is this, that we at some point have to have a skepticism about our ability to reason from effect to cause without limit as soon as we start thinking about miracles. The physicist who studies wine and tells me the ground that it came from, the growing season, the combination of the grapes, how long it's been in the barrel, he does a good thing, and he does it accurately. It's a marvel that he can do it. But if he applied those tools to the water in those jugs at the wedding, those tools would have told him the story of that wine that wasn't the story of its origin. The story of its origin was a fiat decree by the maker of heaven and earth that it should be that way. Which means I think we have to have a, a skepticism when we think about this question. At some point, God created the world miraculously. We, we don't know. We don't have any way of knowing, actually. Um, <laughs> Bertram Russell claimed that empirically we have no way of knowing that the world wasn't created five minutes ago. Um, the, so at some point God created the world with, and he created the world with all of the characteristics of naturalness that would carry on into the providential order. But in fact, they didn't get there through the providential order. They got there immediately by fiat. So those trees, they all had growing rings. People make a joke about it. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Yes, absolutely they had belly buttons. Uh, did their bones reflect growth and development over time and nourishment? Yes, absolutely. The whole created order reflected that once it came into being because it was uh, to have all the characteristics of naturalness that God intended and to carry that on through the providential order that would follow. So I, I think that's the framework that we have to, 
come to the question with, and there are very few people who do that. Um, the, uh, but in any case, we can talk about it if you want. But uh, of the ways that, uh, of interpreting uh, Genesis chapter 1, um, there is uh, a, a way of interpreting it called the analogical day view. And that's the one I find most persuasive. The days are God's work days, which are analogous to, but not identical to our work days. Thus, we take the word day in an absolutely normal sense there, but it's a God-like day as compared to our-like days. And... Um, and the, and the point of this is that it's structured for the purpose of setting the pattern for our own uh, rhythm of work and rest in the world. And that's the way the Bible uses it uh, in the fourth commandment, for example. Um, that the fourth commandment is rooted in that pattern. God worked seven, six days and rested on the seventh. Um, the... Um, the six days, then, of God's work week represent periods of God's historical supernatural activity in preparing and populating the earth as a place for humans to live, love, work, and worship. And these days are broadly consecutive following the pattern of the text. That is, they're taken as successive periods of unspecified length in our time but one allows for the possibility that parts of the days may overlap and that there might be, they might be logical rather than chronological criteria for the grouping of some of the events on a particular day. But the point is this, that, and, and it's often noticed and it needs to be taken seriously. The thing in the providential order that constitutes a day, that is the earth circling the sun, doesn't even exist until the third day. So the point is this, that Genesis 1 uh, uh, and 2 um, are background, representing an unknown length of time prior to the beginning of the first day. Verse 1 is creation ex nihilo. Verse 2 describes the condition of the earth on the first day. And the verses that follow are built on that background. The length of time, either for the creation week on this view, or before it, or since it, is irrelevant to the communicative purpose of the account. And not all analogical days people agree with me on the skepticism point, but I think that point is powerful, and it means that I don't have to feel compelled uh, to by whatever the scientists want to say about how far they think they can peer into the eternity past. I know that at some point, and I don't have to be able to identify it, but I know that at some point, if creation was miraculous, investigative work in terms of trying to get the causes from effects just doesn't work any longer. But I, I don't need to know when that was. Um, all I need to know is that, on the other hand, I don't think the texts of Genesis 1 and 2 force me into some uh, constrained way of thinking. 
that doesn't take account of the natural providential order. So that's the way uh, I would respond to it. And um, I do think that... Um, uh, I will I say that uh, I came into Reformed theology in Western Pennsylvania, and that was um, uh, a, a, an area of the country that was deeply influenced by pr the Princeton theology, the old Princeton theology of Warfield, Alexander Hodge, and so on. And um, the, it, it, I was in very conservative circles. I, ne I never met until I came into the PCA, a reformed theologian, an orthodox reformed theologian who held the six 24-hour days. And I was shocked beyond belief that people considered me a heretic in the South because I, I was not persuaded. And I was shocked that all of the most conservative Calvinists uh, in the southern part of the church, all seemed to be 24-hour period. In fact, I, it, was, it was so much culturally. When I was growing up in Reformed theology, 24-hour uh, um, early earth creationism was a mark of fundamentalism that Reformed theology was disconnected from. But I, I learned, much to my shock and chagrin, that uh, my fellow Calvinists in the country didn't agree with that and, in fact, looked scant at me uh, in the places where they're in the majority. Now, the, most of them have been very generous to me. I don't get invited to all the things that people get invited to, but they, they I think, what is it? Um, uh, uh, Bob Jones went to Great Britain and met C.S. Lewis, uh, and uh, this is at Bob Jones University. And um, getting off the plane, coming back, a reporter asked him, what do you think of C.S. Lewis? And he said, that man smokes and that man drinks, but I do think he's a Christian. And uh, I know some of my brothers in the South probably say that about me. That man is completely confused about uh, Genesis 1 and 2, but I, I think he's a Calvinist. All right, there's my answer for that uh, Question. Anybody comment, reflection on any of this? Oh, we are running out of time. Um, well, let me uh, go immediately to my question. Uh, do we want to keep going with GabFest next week? Or do we want to... I could offer a, a lecture, but I could do it any time on the calling of the church uh, with respect to um, millennial perspectives. Um, it's, I think, a very interesting subject. I, it came to me because of the question that we're about to turn to. Um, but we could easily, I'm sure there'd be a few more questions and the, what, the questions that are left to us, um, uh, we carry on. So um, just everybody pause for a minute. We'll come back to this, but weigh in on that question. Do you want to do continue with GabFest or change something else? Anybody who wants to continue with the GabFest, raise your hand if you know how to raise your hand. You go to, what do you go to? You go to reactions and there's a bar uh, at the bottom. Uh, not one of the icons at the top, but the 
the bar at the bottom says raised hand. All right, it looks like, oh, there we go. L looks like we've got, uh, oh, clearly a majority. So I'm so, sorry for you folks in the minority, but I, I think I'm going to go ahead with carrying on with the GABFest. That means if you um, have qu more questions, we can add them. Uh, before we quit tonight, though, let me uh, just go to the uh, what I call the um, uh, whimsical subject category, and let me just get that off the table. So we, it's a little embarrassing. Uh, I'm happy to uh, talk about the books that have made a difference in my life, but on the other hand, it always betrays what you've missed reading, and uh, so it can be uh, a little embarrassing. But uh, this is also roughly chronological for me, but I'll just, I, I did send you a list so that you don't have to try and write it down if you have any interest in it. But probably the book that changed my life the most at the time it most needed changing were the books of Francis Schaeffer, uh, The God Who Was There, uh, he is not silent. He is there and not silent. And also Escape from Reason, I could have added to that. Um, the um, second, uh, Herman Bovink, when I knew the book, it was called Our Reasonable Faith. Uh, Bovink's great life's work called Reformed Dogmatics uh, was not translated into English uh, when I was younger and doing all of this study. But his own summary of those four volumes was available, and that's what Our Reasonable Faith was. They now have republished it, a beautiful volume by Westminster, uh, with the, his original title, which was The Wonderful Works of God, so that it's a distillation of those four volumes in a, in a very readable form, and I, I highly commend it. That was the first systematic theology I ever read, and it, it was profoundly edifying to me. Um, one reviewer spoke of it as the best single volume Reformed theology you've never heard of. Um, then you see uh, R.C.'s works uh, had a great influence on my life, especially psychology of atheism, the holiness of God, and knowing scripture. Edwards's two greatest works, uh, Religious Affections and Freedom of the Will, again, as uh, life-changing as Dr. Schaefer, but now it was within the Christian fold, not uh, from one to another, but Edwards had a huge effect on me, and that bore fruit in Dr. Gerstner's work on the rational biblical theology of Edwards. Uh, the greatest theology I, I, in terms of penetration is Dabney's S Syllabus and Notes, it was called. It's now published under the title Systematic Theology. His practical philosophy um, is uh, uh, acute uh, with respect to uh, what what it means to be human and how human beings function as anything I've ever read. And uh, his Christ, our penal substitute, the last thing he ever produced, is the most beautiful treatment of the atonement I've ever seen. And his five points of Calvinism is, is uh, su superior to anything I know of. Of course, Calvin's Institute's powerful, his necessity of reforming the church, uh, and Turton's Institute's um, in, a, in a way very different. Calvin it's like um, bedtime reading from your mother. Uh, Turretin is like uh, your greatest schoolmaster standing over you with a stick, but uh, both have a lot to contribute. I've mentioned B.B. Warfield uh, a host of times, of course, you know of my love for Dr. Packer. And finally, I'll mention uh, A.A. Hodges' Outlines of Theology, 
was a book he produced while he was a pastor in Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, uh, teaching a men's study, going through the whole of theology in a brief way. It's sort of an early version of uh, concise theology. It's really a wonderful work. On the Christian life, John Stott, uh, this was another life changer for me. It's just a little pamphlet. Your Mind Matters, the Place of the Mind in the Christian Life. Edwards' Charity and Its Fruits, I've mentioned many times, as well as Scudder's The Christian's Daily Walk. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment is a Choice Work. Uh, Baxter's Saints Rest, I've taught and read a number of times, and his view of heaven and meditation is really precious. C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man and Paul Helms' The Callings. Commentaries, I just, it was poking a little fun, but uh, nothing is better to read on the scripture than Calvin. There are many, many great commentaries, but uh, get Calvin and you're already ahead in the game. Biographies, uh, uh, Murray's biography, Edwards Johnson's biography of Dabney and uh, Daryl Hart on Machen. Novels, (laughs) here's what's embarrassing. I have very limited (laughs) range in reading, but uh, Lewis's Space Trilogy is marvelous. And of course, I loved Chronicles of Narnia. I'll tell you quickly a story about that. I was working with Young Life and uh, we were on a study break and the uh, area director asked all the people who were working with it to read the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, just the line which in the wardrobe. I knew of C.S. Lewis, but I didn't know anything about, never heard of this book. And I went from bookstore to bookstore to the theology sections and the uh, philosophy sections, and I couldn't find it. And finally, I, I uh, and you know, it shows you how pigheaded I can be. I, I thought, I can find this book. <laughs> but I asked somebody. And the woman looked at me, no, not here, over in the children's section. I thought, what? <laughs> but I was tra- transfixed by the book. Um, Tolkien, of course, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I've read each of those at least four or five times. I, that's why my novel reading isn't broad. I get caught up in the same thing. Uh, Bronte's Jane Eyre is a magnificent work. Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Lewis, in an essay he wrote about her, said that uh, her thought uh, was extraordinary because he said the great abstract nouns of the classic English moralists are unblushingly and uncompromisingly used. Good sense, courage, commitment, fortitude, duties neglected, failings indulged, impropriety, indelicacy, vanity, folly, ignorance, reason, all hard, clear, definable. Contrasted with the world of modern fiction, Jane Austen's is at once less soft and less cruel. <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, and in fact, let me put in a plug for the Trinity Forum Conversations. Uh, Karen Swallow Pryor had a conversation with them on reading Jane Austen, uh, a clever title, A Novel Approach to Virtue. And of course, to play on words new and novelistic. Then the rest is just for fun. Uh, I love mysteries and you see those. Um, so I'll want to hear from you next time we get together what some of your favorite books are, but I, uh, I, I thought I would comply even in my embarrassment. Well, questions, comments, reflections? 
uh, Carl and Sherman, or your hands are up, but maybe they're up still from the vote. Yeah, from before. <laughs> All right. Turn, turn our camera on for a second. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, Kate, I saw you were trying. I just want to say hi. Hello. We uh -huh. miss you. Good to see you. You too. Has it snowed up there yet? We've had some flurries. Dusting. Oh, dusting. Uh, dusting. <laughs> dusting. Uh, we're, they're saying we may not get any dust down here at all this year. So it's sad. Mm. I, I'm in mourning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good to see you. Kate, I saw your hand. Were you voting or did you have a, a question or point you wanted to make? Uh, I had a question beforehand, but I'll just wait till next week. Are you sure? Yep. Yep. All right. Thank you. Well, lovely being with you all again tonight. And um, don't hesitate to add some questions to our list, but we do have uh, plenty to talk about next time as well. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the light that your word shines into our darkness and that it in fact illumines us. It lets us walk by the light and and in fact, to then have the opportunity to be the light for others. And we pray you would bless our efforts this evening to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.